Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill, and this is broadcast number 78, March 2nd, 2015. Just want to really quick bring everybody up to speed on uh, some of the things that we've been doing here. Um, a- as you all know, we have a website, gpts.edu. You want to visit that? We've, we've updated the website um, in recent months, and... Um, it is something that you're going to want to take advantage of and listen to when, or not listen to, <laughs> view when you are able. And of course, our confessingourhope.com website as well. In addition to that, we do have the mobile app, which I have recently updated to include all of Dr. Piper's, Dr. Piper's chapel sermons that he is currently doing here at the seminary, specifically the ones on Psalm 119. So that just started a series that just began, and uh, Dr. Piper is uh, uh, preaching through. And speaking of Dr. Piper, we do have him in studio today to talk with us again, Faith and Practice edition number 12. It's amazing to me, Dr. Piper, that we've done 12 of these, and, and, and it's, in some sense, all the questions. They've been so good and so helpful. Um, but um, anyway, welcome you to the program again today. And Thank uh, you, Bill. To, to it's begin. great to do this with you. To look at these things now, we didn't chat as we usually do off air. Did you want to take these uh, just at the, from the top mm-hmm. down? Just I've, work I've our way. Checked. Okay, very good. So that's what we're going to do, um, and I guess we're on the same page. So Jesse writes in from Miami, Florida. You're going to welcome our live listeners, Bill. Oh, uh, true. I, I'm not used to doing it live, but yes, we are doing this podcast live. Uh, we tend to do this particular segment, the faith and practice segments live. We don't usually do the other ones live, but this one we do. And of course, it's always available for podcast uh, to listen to whenever you want to after I post it, which is usually in about a week or so. So um, anyway, there you go. But And the hashtag, if they want to send a question, oh, why yeah. we're on the air, Bill. Well, I tell you, he's, he's on the ball and I'm not. I um, have jet lag. Yeah. And he, well, that's see Anyway, if you do are on live and you have Twitter, and would like to write in a question, you have 140 characters to do it, but you can use the hashtag GPTSFP, like for faith and practice. But make sure you use that hashtag, and I will see it instantaneously as soon as you post the question. So if it's a follow-up question on something right. we're doing. Yeah, very good. If it's a follow-up, something that uh, has been talked about, then by all means, utilize <clears throat> that option um, as much as you can. All right, so our... Um, First question for today, I'm already getting Twitter, I'm already getting responses on Twitter, which is great. But uh, Jesse writes in from Miami, Florida, where um, it's probably much warmer than it is here. Uh, writes in and says, when a session forms a commission in order to handle a church discipline case, can and should the commission divulge all the information they've gathered to the rest of the session? In other words, is the commission allowed to provide details about the matter to the session, or does the session have to trust the judgment of the commission without any feedback about the specifics of the case from the session. Thank you, Jesse. I had to ponder this one a good bit and also sought some uh, counsel. For the sake of our listeners, uh, in the uh, Presbyterian Church government, we have committees and commissions. Committees do work, bring back that work, then is enacted or rejected or whatever by the court as a whole, by court we have sessions, presbyteries, synods, general assembly. A commission acts on behalf of the court, and all the court does is vote its decision up or down. Many judicial cases are dealt with by commissions. That's a trial, simply because it's hard to get a whole session, even harder a whole presbytery or a whole general assembly, to hear a, a trial, a judicial trial. So... Uh, commissions normally function then with a smaller group of men that handle a case. Now, normally a session wouldn't have a commission do this because most sessions are not that large. So I'm assuming this is a pretty large church with a large session. But by the time in a session a discipline case goes to trial with the commission, the elders should already know all the facts because the elders are the ones that have to agree to an indictment being drawn up and the commission appointed to try the case. And so 
if they appointed a commission to investigate the facts and determine if there should be a trial, that commission would be responsible to make a decision and come to the presbyter or to the session and say, we think there should be a trial, and here are the reasons, and give the reasons in what's going on, or there shouldn't be a trial, and here are the reasons. Now, assuming that's happened, one way or the other, either the session knew ahead of time and appointed the commission, or the commission came back and said there should be a trial, and here's why, the session should know all about the case on the front end. The commission then would hear witnesses. Now, the session doesn't need to know everything that a witness said, but a session would need to know that according to the evidence that we have received, so-and-so is guilty of, and then lists the specific sins and the recommended sanctions for those sins. And so in no case should a commission keep from the session the case that the commission has adjudicated. I'm not sure that was real clear, Jesse, but I hope you got the idea. The session does need to know they should have known on the front end and they definitely need to know that the session has to vote the verdict up or down. They don't debate it, but they need to know all the facts. Very good. Thank you, Jesse, for writing in. And it's a good question. Um, we actually have a number of things today that deal in this whole area of uh, church uh, discipline. In fact, Bill, why don't we skip two and three, come back to them, and keep these others bunched. Sorry to do you that way. No, that's okay. But since they uh, both uh, five, four, and five definitely are in the same area. Okay, so we're on the First Corinthians six question. Yeah. Okay. Do you want me to leave the names out on these? Yes, please. Okay. Uh, we do, as Doctor Pipe already indicated, we do have a couple questions written in that deal with possibly potentially real issues, and so we are deliberately leaving names <clears throat> off of these questions for the public consumption, just we're trying to be wise in how we deal with this. And so this next question is written in and, sa- and asks, uh, some say that 1 Corinthians 6 teaches that all sin in the church must be dealt with in-house, even when the sin is sexual child abuse. What are your thoughts on this? Also, what commandment does a person committing sexual abuse on a child break besides all of them all right thanks for the question i know it's important and probably a very real burning issue Uh, a first corinthians 6 does not say that all sin should be dealt with in house what it says was a matter of litigious natures of minor lawsuits that christians should not be taking christians to court before unbelievers those things should be settled by the um session. But in the Protestant church, we've never claimed the right of the ministry to keep civil crimes from the civil government. So if the session determines that someone has committed murder, they would have to tell that person to turn himself in or they would turn him in. Now, the same is true. Otherwise, they can be actually accomplices to Uh, the fact. In the uh, sex abuse cases, the law in every state requires uh, anyone that knows about such uh, accusations to come forward. I learned this actually from our counselor, uh, George Scipione. He and I worked together in California. I had a case and went and talked to George, and he said, you cannot deal with it in-house because we're biblically responsible to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. If it's a civil crime, it must be reported. So um, particularly the sexual child abuse case needs to be reported um, because the church, the pastor, can get in all kinds of problems if they don't do so. Plus, um, the problems can actually multiply. So I hope you understand that uh, that 1 Corinthians 6 does not say that all sins kept in the church and that particularly the church is responsible when the, when the state law is not at all contrary to God's law, we're to obey it. And there's nothing contrary. I mean, this is not just a moral offense. You know, somebody's breaking the Lord's day. Uh, we don't take them to, to the state. Uh, and today, if they've committed fornication or adultery, we don't take them to the state. Uh, but if they have committed a, a crime, 
example, said they've stolen, then we're responsible to tell them to turn themselves in. They need to make restitution according to the Bible. Now, if they can make restitution to someone, they go to the people and say, I stole from you, and I'm going to make biblical restitution. And the people say, okay, let's work this out amongst ourselves. That's fine. Uh, but uh, in these other crimes like murder or sex abuse or whatever, uh, the, the church may not keep it in-house. And if churches are doing that, you know, usually there's more going on that, than simply trying to be biblical. Usually there's cover-up um, because there's no exegetical basis for taking 1 Corinthians 6 in that manner. As to what commandments... The break, of course, you're right, breaks all of them, but in particular, the fifth and the seventh commandments are being violated by a sexual abuse of a child. The fifth commandment, uh, if you look at the larger catechism, requires responsibilities of superiors to inferiors, and uh, they're very clearly laid out. And of course, the seventh commandment forbids all type of sexual um, immorality, as well as those things that would lead to sexual immorality, such as pornography or drunkenness. Of course, all commandments break, particularly the first commandment and the tenth commandment, which in, in a sense of the bookends. So, but this is a particularly wicked commandment. It also violates the sixth commandment, sin, it violates the sixth commandment because it is going to do harm uh, to that person. Very few people who are abused sexually escape that without emotional scars as well, and some actually physical scars. And so it's a very serious sin. Please do not keep it in-house. Very good, and thank you for writing in and asking. It's a difficult question, of course, and um, thank you, Dr. Piper, for handling it so well. Uh, the next question comes in again. It's on a similar subject. Um, the question is regarding sexual abuse in the church. Responsibilities of pastors, officers, and members regarding all aspects, policy beforehand, treating incidents when they happen, timing of and issues surrounding mandatory reporting, and the hard discussions and counseling needed to move forward. Pointing to faithful resources to help parents and others would be much appreciated as well. So this is a very large, I think, Dr. Pipe, it's a very large subject Um and he's asking a lot for a lot, I think, in this. Um, it may be beyond the scope of just this particular podcast itself, but maybe a summary okay. would be helpful. Very good. <clears throat> Responsibility of the pastors, officers, and members will vary. <clears throat> As biblically, our responsibilities vary. The pastors and officers, and I'll put elders in there with the pastors, uh, so really the, the ministers and elders have uh, the most serious responsibility in a case like this, both with respect to the offender, the offended, and to protect the remainder of their congregation. <clears throat> and so they are responsible to uh, clarify uh, this accusation is here, if their accusation is being made, they do not have the privilege of trying to make the decision, well, maybe it's not a valid accusation. Uh, if the accusation is made and the person making the accusation uh, is very clear, then <clears throat> the offices of the church are required to take the issue to uh, the civil authorities. <clears throat> Now, <clears throat> with respect to policy beforehand, that's probably the place I should have began as well. That's not where the question began, though. Our churches today need to have in place very clear policies, both about protection uh, of members and how these situations are handled. I think, for example, Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church, where I attend, has a very good policy with respect to uh, these activities, as well as a very careful policy of screening uh, nursery workers and uh, many other aspects of the life of the church. It's only wise today for churches to have clear policies uh, with respect to uh, these types of activities and that those policies are known to all the members. Now, the, um, then I went to treating incidences when they happen. 
They must be dealt with immediately. And if a person is accused, that person must immediately be isolated from um, any context where they could do further harm. Now, that's difficult. We're not saying they're guilty. But the charge has been made. And thus, in order to protect the flock, uh, there has to be uh, some guidelines, some guards that are put in place. The timing surrounding a mandatory reporting is immediately. Now, once it's, you know, this is not a rumor circling in the church, but the person has come forward to uh, his or her parents and or to the pastor and said, so-and-so has done this to me. Um, you go to so-and-so, you've been accused of this, uh, you give them opportunities to to defend themselves. You ask if there's another witness, but you still today are required to go to the authorities and to do so very quickly, simply because of the danger of uh, postponing this. Now, I mentioned in the previous question is that I, I myself dealt with this, and the first case I ever had was before there was mandatory reporting. Um, I... Um, I think I made some serious mistakes in judgment uh, that many years later I would learn um, that probably even led to some greater brokenness. So I, I appreciate the strictness of the law and the session should cooperate. Now, we function on two levels. We actually have a case in our presbytery. There's, there is a church trial going on for this person is accused, and there's also a civil trial going on. And the church does not wait on the state. The church will conduct its own investigation, and the church should conduct its own trial if there is any evidence of sin. The state is required to do its investigation, and if they have evidence, then there is the uh, uh, need of the state to have a trial. So if, there's, if, there's, if an accusation has been made, now in, in the past there was a lot of psychobabble going on and somebody would have a problem and there was a whole fad of, of counselors telling people, well, you were abused and you just don't remember it. And then these people were going around and they were accusing their uncle or their grandfather or their father or whatever. And there wasn't the slightest bit of evidence. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a child or a woman or a man comes forward and says, so-and-so made advances against me, touched me or whatever. Uh, that has to be dealt with both in-house and by the authorities. Now, after it's reported to the authorities, as I said, the session then must conduct its own investigation and follow... If the person denies it, they have to follow Matthew 18. Um, if there are no other witnesses, then that makes it very hard for the church to, to do anything. Um, so immediately when a person comes forward like that, they, the church should also require a physical examination so that if there were more than just touching, uh, there would be evidence mm. of that. The church can require DNA uh, samples as well, and the state would do that. And we are in the church bound by the requirement of two witnesses. And the, I, I've known of places where somebody's come forward and accused somebody else of a heinous crime. They didn't do it. And the church is not allowed to convict someone on the basis of only one witness. Whereas the state unfortunately can't convict on one witness. And the church, when the witness comes forward, also must be very careful to warn their witness of what the Bible says about false witness. And that they could actually become <clears throat> subject to the very penalties <clears throat> that would happen to the person that they are uh, accusing. It's not an easy thing, and in our day, it's only an, sadly becoming uh, much more of a common thing. As to the counseling needed, the church needs to be sure they've got resources for biblical counseling. We're blessed. We've got 
a couple of good resources in our area. Uh, Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church has a counseling pastor, and um, there's the counseling center out at the ARP Church uh, in Moore. And so um, you immediately then, if somebody is either the victim, they should have some counseling, and then, of course, the offender should have uh, counseling, and and the parents as well. <clears throat> so I hope that this helps. I hope that uh, this particular session is dealing with this issue uh, uh, wisely. It's never an easy uh, issue to deal with. No, it's not. But thank you for writing in, and um, thank you for Dr. Piper for, uh, again, uh, carefully trying to deal with this. It's it's difficult to, when we're dealing with it in a microphone setting like this. We don't have people in front of us to talk with. and But um, these are difficult. They're hard issues. And um, so we're trying to be as tactful <clears throat> and wise as we can. And speaking of that, our next question, again, I'm not going to mention the name um, for the sake of just trying to be sensitive to the question itself. But uh, the question is this, Dr. Piper, thanks for your ministry. My wife and I are facing a lot of medical bills that are not covered by insurance and are facing a very uncertain fi future financially. I have two questions. Are we robbing God if we give less than 10% to the church? And should we talk to our elders about our finances? Hmm. You know, thank you for uh, the question. I hope it's, I hope our answer is not too late for you. You've had to put up a whole other month of, of waiting uh, on this. Um, let me put it this way. If you believe that tithing is biblical, and if you're not tithing, you're robbing God. I believe that tithing is biblical. There are those in the Reformed Church that don't think that the New Testament gives us any particular percentage pattern. I think tithing was established with Melchizedek, and the confession was the God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. He remains the possessor of heaven and earth, and he is our possessor and redeemer. And this tithe goes straight through the uh, Old Testament, and then the proportionate giving is spelled out in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I think we should tithe. If you don't think that tithing's biblical, then you're not sinning against your conscience. Now, you could still be sinning because you could be wrong, but that's a sin of fallibility. We all have those. Same way that either credo-baptist or pedo-baptist are sinning. We're both not correct. Now, it's not a deliberate sin. Uh, and when we get to heaven, we'll all find out that the pedo-baptists were right. But uh, that's a joke. <laughs> anyway, um, <clears throat> but if you think tithing is a requirement of Scripture, you'd both be breaking a requirement of Scripture and acting against conscience. Uh, if you do not tithe. <coughs> now, God has promised, I believe, that if you tithe, he will provide for you. And I've experienced that myself in, in my life when my wife and I were young and uh, exceedingly poor. So I would encourage you. But on the other hand, your second question is very important as well. If you've got unexpected medical bills, yes, you should go to your elders, your deacons, and seek some help from the church. That's not wrong. That is part of what the church is about. I've just been reading in my private reading in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That's um, a great privilege in the church to help one another. And so please go to your elders and uh, let them know your situation. Or go to your deacons if you've got good deacons that are behaving biblically. And let them know your situation and see what they can do to help you. Because they should, if they have any resources at all, help you through this time. And at least drop us a note to let us know how it's going. Yes, please do do that. And we and again, I I also apologize. The the question was in the queue from last time. We never got as far as we were, we were hoping to get, and so um, unfortunately, we had to push it, push it off to this month. But we uh, we do hope that the, the question was helpful or the answer was helpful in, in your current situation. Our next question comes in from overseas, way overseas, um, from Gideon. He writes in from Singapore, which, you know, the, I was reading that as you were answering the last question, Dr. Pipe, and I was just really encouraged by the reality that people are listening 
all the way over there in Singapore, and and we have listeners in South Africa and the United Kingdom, and Scotland, and oh, we, see, see, he, that's why he's here because he's the expert and knows all these things. <laughs> I just host it, but anyway, he writes in. It's on um, Dr. Piper's favorite subject, exclusive psalmody, and he writes in greetings from Singapore, from the opposite side of the globe. Isn't that the truth? Your podcast has been been a great blessing indeed, notwithstanding we are so far apart. I am from a Reformed church in Singapore that stands by exclusive psalmody and all our formal public worship. Our scriptural basis is as per the regulative principle of worship derived from Deuteronomy 12.32, whatsoever thing I command you observe to do, thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. Understand you may have a different perspective. Please help me to expand my horizon and I, as I may have missed something here. Gideon, thanks for the question, uh, and I have great respect for you and your church. In fact, as you know, I'll be over there, Lord willing, in June doing your uh, annual conference, so I don't want to get in trouble with the elders. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, let me start with your scriptural basis, because often, as I teach on this in the worship class, this is the first thing I try to clarify. <clears throat> Because sometimes people that hold exclusive psalmody, and for our, for our listeners, again, that might not know the issue, there are, are those in the church today who believe that we should only sing the 150 psalms, at least in corporate worship. Others believe that we should sing psalms, but hymns as well. I'm in that second category. Now, you can say I'm an inclusive psalmist, and I think that we should have psalms in all of our worship services, even a preponderance of psalms in many of our services or through a period of a, of a month's worship or whatever. <clears throat> but the thing we have to realize is, is that both sides of the issue hold to the regular principle of worship. Sometimes exclusive psalmists will say that they hold to the regular principle of worship, and because of that, they sing psalms exclusively. Well, I sing psalms and hymns because of the regulative principle of worship. And we, we can't get very far in any kind of discussion if we don't recognize that about each other. So I respect the position of exclusive psalmist as a very sound position with some very serious arguments and a genuine attempt to hold to the regulative principle of worship. And for our listeners, what that means is is that we only do in worship and must do in worship that which is revealed to us in Scripture and nothing else. So both sides hold to the regulative principle of worship, at least if they're not traditionalist, and both sides have, its tradi- have their traditionalist as well. <clears throat> now, there's no way on the podcast that I can go into uh, all of the uh, reasons from the Bible of why I think that we should be singing hymns as well as psalms. Let me just say this. I believe the Bible requires me to sing more than the psalms. In the Old Testament, many things beside the psalms were sung. Habakkuk, who had an entire psalter, wrote a hymn at the end of his uh, prophecy. Hezekiah wrote music for the worship of God as thanksgiving to God for his supernatural healing. (coughs) Mary sang a Magnificat that was not from uh, the Psalms. Zechariah. We have the fact that in Philippians chapter 2, the great honor that belongs to Christ in his exaltation is to be praised by the name of Jesus. And though we can sing about Christ in the Psalms, we cannot sing about him as Jesus in the Psalms. And it seems to me he is given that name in glory, according to Philippians uh, chapter 2. And then we have some excellent hymns in the book of Revelation. Many say that Philippians 2 is a hymn and other (laughs) snatches of poetry in the New Testament. So that's a quick overview, Gideon. Uh, You can go on Sermon Audio and hear a lecture that I gave a couple of years ago on uh, why sing hymns, or being a student here, you can get into uh, the student archives and hear the class that was done this past January in the worship course on uh, what should we sing. Yeah, very good. And let me add also, um, 
a number of the spring theology conferences ago, uh, and, and I don't. Dr. Piper probably remember the year. I don't, but I know that Dr. Shaw did a debate with uh, someone, um, and I forget that too, on this particular subject. And um, I listened to it. It is very helpful, um, and so I would encourage you to find that. That's online as well, on the sermon audio site. So there's some suggested resources uh, for your to, for your consideration. All right. Are we ready? We're moving on. We're moving on. Charles writes in from Charlotte, North Carolina, um, on the subject of theonomy. And he wants to know if uh, Dr. Piper can please explain your affinities and or differences with the theonomic position. Could you especially touch on your thoughts pertaining to Old Testament civil penalties and how they relate to modern-day governments? Are Old Testament civil penalties simply fulfilled in the church's discipline and excommunication, or should the civil magistrate give thought to the Old Testament civil penalties too. Uh, that's a lot of questions in there. Woo, it surely is. Um, the word theonomy itself simply means the law of God, and all biblical Christians love God's law. Now, we relate to God's law in a different, different ways in the New Covenant, and the ways are spelled out for us <clears throat> in our Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 19 where we're given the uh, various uses of the law. In paragraph 3, besides this law, that's the moral law that is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are not exhaustive. They are the genus. They are suggestive of all of God's moral law. And the moral law is a reflection of God's character, his relationship to us, ours to him, and to one another. <coughs> Excuse me. So besides that, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth divers, that means different instructions, on moral duties, all which ceremonial laws are now abrogated under the New Testament. So the moral laws were twofold. They with worship— and that would be all of the temple uh, laws, everything connected with the priesthood, the sacrifices, all prefiguring Christ in his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. But also, there's a section, a group of ceremonial laws that prefigure or hold forth different moral duties. And this would be the laws of cleanliness and uh, all of those types of laws that God is revealing his sovereignty over all of life and that we, in every area of life, must be governed by his word. Now, because they were ceremonial laws, they too were fulfilled uh, in Christ. Then paragraph 4, to them also is a body politic, and that means as a civil, the old covenant church after Moses was um, both church and state together, so they were a body politic. He gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. So when people talk about theonomy as an entity, they're really talking about paragraph 4 and the role of the civil or judicial laws in the church and the life of people today. So <clears throat> I personally and the seminary hold to 1914 that these laws are not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. So that in these laws there will be moral principles. And those moral principles we should look for and require. So, in the Old Covenant, a person had to build a little fence around their roof because that's their patio. They go up there in the hot evenings and sit. And so the principle that is there is that you must protect people from being injured on your property. So the principle would be if I had a swimming pool, whether or not the state required it, I should uh, put a fence around it so that an unsuspecting child would not fall into the pool and drown. 
I think that even if the state didn't require it, the use of seatbelt is a principle of equity, Hmm. that um, I need to protect myself (coughs) in this creation that wasn't around when the law was given, but the moral principle is applicable. So now there'd be differences of opinion as to which principles might still apply. And then we have, of course, the civil sanctions. And with the judicial law came um, the punishments. Now, again, the principle of equity is quite wise. If we followed it, we wouldn't have a big prison problem. Hmm. Would be people be making restitution. Yep. They could be flogged. They could be indentured servants to uh, undo the damage that they've done. There's a lot of things there that would make society a lot better off if we implemented them today. And I would think that's much wiser than our own uh, our prison system. It doesn't make a lot of sense to put a drug user in prison. It doesn't make any sense to put a thief in prison because biblically he should be making restitution. Now, the big issue gets down to, well, two big issues. Most Christians that are Reformed will recognize that the second table of the law is the basis of criminal code. Not all sins are criminal. Sins of the heart are not criminal. That's the whole problem today with hate crimes. You can't prove motives and actions of the heart. But actions that violate the uh, last six commandments, <clears throat> actually we'll say five through nine, can be, should be criminalized. Now, should violations of the first four commandments be criminalized? Well, I still remember a day when it was a criminal offense to take God's name in vain in public. And we had blue laws <laughs> that required stores to be closed on Sunday. <clears throat> Those were good laws. <clears throat> and I think that uh, society would be much better off today if we still had such laws. Now, should we have laws that require people to worship? No. Um, but should we have laws that uh, protect the people that do worship? Yes. And so there's ways that the first four commandments can apply as well. The other big issue is what we call the civil sanctions, the death penalties with respect to uh, the serious old covenant violations. And the wisest word on that <clears throat> is the last chapter of Calvin's Institutes, where he points out that when a um, Old Testament civil sanction parallels the sanction of natural law government that <clears throat> it'd be wise for the civil magistrate to keep those sanctions in place. And so, for example, in his commentary on Genesis, he says when Judah calls for Tamar to be put to death is that here we see that a biblical Sanction was also being practiced before it was revealed in Moses, and thus the state may implement that sanction. They don't have to. Theonomists would say the state's required to do so. Calvin would say it would be a wise thing to do. And so I, that's, that's where I am. I think that there would be a lot of uh, benefit if, in fact, the state did reflect more of the uh, sanctions of the Old Testament, particularly when they parallel what cultures have done for years. See, even with adultery, uh, in the Bible, the only death penalty offense for which one could not give a ransom was murder. But that's because it predated the Mosaic. It's a, a Noahic revelation. If it was not a hardened, repeated act, a person could make restitution. They wouldn't necessarily be put to death. But the person who persisted impenitently in their sin, in the Old Testament, would have been put to death. And I don't see anything wrong with that. It's not contrary to the gospel. You still tell them about Christ, and uh, you take a murderer, you don't—they're converted. And when the lady was converted in Texas, and all these Christians were saying, well, she's become a Christian now, she shouldn't be put to death. And Governor Bush said, well, no, she should be put to death. I'm glad she's become a Christian. Hmm. And that's, I think, the thing to do. So it, there's no conflict. Now, you can get a conflict when people in the church 
and ministers are more keen on the civil sanction than they are the gospel. And that's been one of my problems historically is that I want to see an interest in the gospel. But to the degree that um, we give counsel on the construction of the state, I think that that, uh, these things are, are wise. Now, with respect to church discipline, yes, any crime in the Old Covenant that was a death penalty crime automatically should be excommunication if the person does not repent. Well, very good. And, it, and it, it's one of those subjects, Dr. Piper, that for whatever reason we end up dealing with almost all the time, or pretty regularly here for some reason. And it's a big subject. And, and, and again, it's not one of those subjects. I mean, that's a podcast in and of itself, honestly, um, that and, and some of the other questions we've dealt with earlier. But very good. And, and it's probably in the Lord's providence because we've, we've <coughs> actually have a, propon- a, a abundance of time today, more so than we've had in the past, so we're we're not forced to rush through some of these. And I wanted but, to say something else, I forgot to. Sure. Um, on the principle of equity, now this is a live podcast, and so those of you that are listening can still get here, or you can listen live uh, to some of our conference. But our conference is next week, starts Tuesday afternoon at one fifteen, and goes till Thursday uh, noon, and it's on the law of God. And George Scipione is actually doing an entire lecture on the principle of equity and biblical counseling. And I can tell you, I can hardly wait (laughs) to hear this, because I've said all along, rather than arguing about theonomy, we ought to be working together. What are the principles of equity? We could do a much better job, I think, in applying uh, the law today uh, at every sphere of life and society. So, And that message, if you can't, if you're on the only doing this on the podcast, it'll be after the conference, but you'll be able to go on sermon audio fairly soon after the conference and hear the messages. And so that'll help there as well, I believe. Yep, and the mobile app. <coughs> we'll have them at some later date. I don't know when. Um, and also just at, at, for a programming note about the conference, Tuesday and Wednesday nights, it's free to the public. If you live in the Greenville area, come. Just come. Just show up. And Dr. Pipe is preaching, and I forget. Ian Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Ian Hamilton is preaching Tuesday, Wednesday nights, free, come. If you're not able, you're not in the area, um, it'll be streamed live over Sermon Audio, so you can watch it in full high, in full HD. Watch it. Enjoy it. Um, it's it's well done. Um, so get involved one way or the other. There's the options for you. Quickly moving along, just for Dr. Pipe's uh, knowledge, we have about 17 minutes left of the live portion the question that came in you never sent him into it. yeah no it's okay it, we'll, if we get to it i'm not too worried about it um israel writes in from brazil um and and i'm i'm probably going to change a little bit of the parameters of the question dr Pipe, you have the question in front of you but i think you'll you understand what i'm doing i think um he writes in um, i'm single but because i'm in the preparation for the for marriage i have this question that i've never heard a pastor with a firm foothold about the subject to deal with do you think it is a sin to have intimacy? That's the way he put it, but then in parentheses he has another term, and, and I'm trying to be very careful. You didn't send me this question. Um, so. But um, I didn't? No. You must have it. But anyway, let me finish the question. I'm sure you can answer this very quickly. Do you think it is a sin to have intimacy, quote, unquote, the listeners get it, with my wife in the on the Lord's Day? I have often been asked that question, Israel, and uh, you have, yeah. Wow! Wow! <clears throat> I think that uh, again, it's a matter of conscience. What Paul says in First Corinthians seven is the only time you refrain from uh, sexual relations with your wife is when you agree for a period of time for a day of prayer and uh, a time of prayer and fasting, and quickly come back together. It's a matter of conscience of how one looks at that relationship. I don't have a problem with it, and uh, but if a person has conscience that they shouldn't do it, remember, to act against conscience is a sin. And this really is, I think, a matter of of uh, conscience, of, of Christian liberty. Hmm. And so um, I leave it up to each person. For each couple, and 
Well, that's what I like to say. Yeah, well, I'm. I'm sorry you didn't. Blindsided I'm sorry I didn't. Lips. I'm sorry I wasn't. I, I thought I had sent it to him. Um, I was late in getting these. And in the interest of full disclosure, it is my fault. I was late in getting these to Doctor Piper. He was out of the country. I told him I'd have them to him by Saturday. I didn't. I panicked early, early Sunday morning. And anyway, um, you did it on Sunday, huh? I uh, <laughs> and I figured I'd probably get yelled at for that. But um, oh. it, anyway, I was between a rock and a hard place. Kind of kicked. I, my, I can't say honestly my ox was in a ditch because I think I threw it there. Um, but um, but be that as it may, I thought I'd send it to him. I didn't. But, uh, you know, in some sense, though, the question really is is a good one. Good, because good Because you can, you can apply no, this. I often ask the question. Well, you can apply this also to, I, I know pastors who have, uh, who enjoy smoking cigars. And, but I, but they're con- they feel conscious bound to disengage from that activity on the Lord's Day for for whatever reason. I mean, that it, in some sense, that's a similar type of conscious bound activity that they just say, "Hey, look, I'm, for me, I'm just not going to smoke cigars on the Lord's Day because that's what I do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday, or or whatever the case may be." If I told you who it was, you, well, it wouldn't shock you, I doubt. But um, well, anyway, you don't drink coffee, you don't eat food. Yeah, I, I mean. <laughs> anyway, it's but it's a matter of conscience. But if, if you that's their if, if you believe it's wrong, somebody else. Yeah, if you believe it's wrong, then you shouldn't do it. <clears throat> I think James tells us that. But don't say to other people they shouldn't either, right. because then that changes the right. parameters entirely. Yeah, and I would keep it uh, in the bedroom. What your convictions are, right? Although the, I just gave you mine. Yes, uh, but uh, again, it's a matter. It's a matter of, of conscience. But don't if 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 your conscience is free, then don't put yourself under another. Uh, burden. All right, let's see here. I'm, I'm. We have jumped around a little bit, so I'm trying. Number seven is where I, I'm, I'm yeah. doing a number of things. As listeners, most most of you know, I do a number of things while this is happening. I'm monitoring the live broadcast. I'm making sure the recording is working correctly, and I'm trying to keep track of the questions. So I'm going to just jump to the bottom, and for and then work my way back up because I think that's the only way I can do this um, and know where I am. Someone wrote in anonymous. Uh, and ask the question about w, double imputation. I think you could probably deal with this very quickly. Um, and I don't know if you have this one or not. I do. Either. This is exhaust what I have. Okay. It, it is the last one uh, on your one. list, but I do have a couple others. Okay. Uh, the person writes in, I have heard the phrase w, double imputation of Christ used in various settings, and I wonder what it means. Thank you for the question. It's a great, great question because it's a wonderful concept. Double imputation means that the Guilt of those for whom Christ died is is imputed to him, and his righteousness is imputed to them. So 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Imputation means just what it sounds like. From two Latin words, but simply to place upon. It's not at all a mysterious concept. You do it. If you do electronic banking, you're not moving cash from one account to another. You're reckoning a debit to one account and a credit to another account. That's imputation. So Christ's people, those for whom he obeyed and died, the guilt, the moral debit of their sin was placed into his account so that he became legally guilty for that sin. In the same way, if someone, you agreed to go surety for someone and you picked up their debt because they couldn't pay the debt, you then were legally required to pay that debt. So Christ received the guilt legally for the sins of his people. And then when he completed that work, when we are regenerated and believe in him, his righteousness is placed into our moral account and accomplishes two things. It means all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, but it also means that we are constituted legally righteous in the sight of God. It's also called the great exchange, and it's one of the most beautiful truths in the Bible. It's the heart of the gospel. And I thought you'd appreciate that question because here, <clears throat> Dr. Pipe's second favorite 
class to teach. He used to be his first favorite class to teach. Favorite. Well, wait a minute. Now, you told me the other day, Intro to Reformed Theology was your first favorite. Well, I'm glad I get to teach it, but Christ and Salvation. Christ and Salvation. It's, it's, it's a fourth-year class here for the students. Fourth year, right? Yeah, fourth-year class um, for the students and deals with all of these um, things, and it is, it's a great subject. And um, Anyway, but thanks for the question. I want to ask this question, Dr. Pipe. It's a, a write-in uh, that came in the chat room for the live broadcast um, uh, Shane writes in, he asks, what are some ways ministers and elders can improve their private and family prayer? I think that's how he's, he's asking it. Do you have any advice for private and family prayer practices? Well, Shane, that is uh, probably one of the most important things that we do, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> there's some... Mechanical principles that are very important in the first place. One would be um, a set time and place for your private prayers. It's built as a schedule into your life. And the same for family prayers. It needs to be a set time and place that will be the best, most suitable for your family, and that can change as the circumstances of the family change. I think with respect to prayer, a prayer journal is very important. And a prayer journal, I recommend both prayer items you're praying for, daily, weekly, and monthly, place for answers to prayer, and that helps me stay on target. It helps one of the ways to keep my mind uh, from wandering. And if any of the readers are interested, I think I've got a PowerPoint chart that shows how I lay out a um, prayer journal. You can incorporate that with a, a record-keeping journal as well, uh, which is also a very useful thing uh, to do. With respect to prayer, <clears throat> I think it should be interwoven with our Scripture reading. You start with Scripture. I start with a portion of a psalm. We approach the Scripture in prayer with the prayers of God being our teacher, illumining our understanding, opening his word to us, communing with us in his word. We begin with that. We're praying that as we read. We go from reading to praising uh, for the things that mm. we're instructed to praise him for in the Scripture to rest of the reading that we would do. I use McShane's Bible reading calendar. Again, I think it's very important to have some kind of system that you use. And so I will meditate on a certain passage or concept uh, in my reading, turn that into a prayer. So I'm praying through my reading. Then I go into uh, confession of sin, and we, we should have the parts of prayer the acts of the Lord's Prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And then I go into my petitions. I start with my family, then the seminary, and then the broader community, um, people, things for which I am praying. The structure for family worship uh, needs to be... um, Prayer, Bible reading, if you can, sing. If you've got children, do some catechism. Discuss the story with them a bit. I I think when the children are really young, you can use a Bible story book, but I think it's just as good to read Scripture and tell them a little bit of the story yourself. But early on, Bible story books are useful. Mm. Catechism. um, Teach the children to pray. Don't just pray yourself. So that's all, you know, that's the mechanical part. But uh, the fervency part, and that's where we have to look at the larger catechism and uh, the need of the Spirit uh, to help us pray and really crying out to God as we begin that he would help us to pray, that he would keep us minds from wandering, that he would give us fervency. And then we've got to learn to plead with God to Mm. take the things that we're reading and turn them into arguments and grounds and, and um, bases for uh, the things that we're asking God to do. <clears throat> and it's good to conclude our prayers uh, publicly or privately with doxology. 
as the Lord's Prayer. How would this relate to public prayer as well? There was a follow-up to that. And um, certainly, at least I have found, my experience has been when my private prayer life is in order and fervent and consistent, my public prayers in the church as an elder uh, are better. Uh, when I'm not praying privately as much, oh, yes. my public prayers are, are, are all over the place. Yeah, that's true. But what about resource, maybe, for public prayer? Well, resource for both is, of course, the, the Banner Truth edition, The Valley of Vision, a great devotional book. Matthew Henry's Method of Prayer. Isaac Watts, he calls it the pattern of prayer, yeah, something, yeah, like that. something like that. Um, very similar title. Hughes Oliphant Olds has a uh, a book on uh, on praying and worship. So those are all useful. The old Anglican Book of Common Prayer about Samuel Miller. Samuel Miller's thoughts book on public on prayer. Thoughts on public prayer. That that book, just as an aside, I, I know I'm not Dr. Piper, <clears> but I've read that book. I was asked by Dr. Piper to read this book for a class. That revolutionized my public prayer thought, the way I thought about public prayer. Totally changed the way I thought about it. So I, I found that book to be extremely helpful. You may have a hard time, I think, in the beginning of the book. Maybe you wouldn't. I, I struggled through the history and all that stuff. That was nice. It was great information. But when we got to the actual nuts and bolts of it, I felt that was very practical and very helpful. One caveat on that book, Bill, is uh, he is fairly opposed to common prayer. Right. And I think that common prayer is a very important part of public prayer. That's when the congregation is praying aloud together. Like the Lord's Prayer, praying it together. Or prayer of confession. Calvin used the same prayer of confession every Lord's sure. Day, and people prayed it together on their knees. Yep. All right, I've got. We've got about four minutes left. I do have a question came in through Twitter, um, and I know you've seen it. Do you want to t- deal with this, or do we can't it. can't do it right now? Okay. So we'll table that one. I, I will always have the list. So if it's a new feature, I'm kind of playing with right now because in in the interest of me, me even trying to shorten up some of the questions. Um, if you do have a question, you want to send it in on Twitter, you just simply write, you can write it to me at William Hill Jr. Or, uh, and, um, and then make sure you use the hashtag GPTSFP. It stands for Faith and Practice, GPTSFP. And I have a list that will always be on the list. It won't just disappear. Um, and so we can deal with it at a, a later date. Um, time permitting, we'll deal with it in the program, but but we really don't. Because it came in, and it's a it, it's it's an involved question, I think. So I just need to, to uh, yeah, it's not a, an answer. It's an answer right. about a cult, and I would have to check on this before I get help. Yep. And, and we do have two other questions that are waiting to be done. We're going to let them sit until next month. Um, this gives me the opportunity in the time we have left to let you, the live listeners, know as well as the recording for the podcast listeners that will listen at a later date. Um, to know that um, if you have not seen the announcement on the ConfessingOurHope.com website about our partnering with Banner of Truth, um, we have um, changed kind of the way we're doing things now. So if you write in a question, we use it on the air before we'd send you a book. We're not doing that anymore. What we're going to do now is we're going to send you a coupon code from the Banner of Truth Trust, which you can use to apply towards a purchase of any book that they publish um, on the uh, uh, on their website, any anything, any material that they have, it's ten dollar uh, discount coupon. So you can go there, spend ten dollars, whatever you know, do whatever you want. But that's yours to use there at their website to get whatever material uh, you would like. It's a fantastic public uh, publishing house. Um, I don't think there's anything better, um, but um, they do a great job. And um, one of our graduates is works there and. Um, has helped us with this. So we are um, thankful to the banner for helping us with this, and it makes our life a little easier on this end, and also guarantees that you get what you want instead of a list that I give you. Um, and this, so this makes it a little bit easier for everybody. So write in your questions, and um, if Dr. Piper uses it on the air, we will send you that $10 coupon. And, of course, if you have any questions about that or any other thing about this program, you can write me at confessingourhope.com. So, Dr. Piper, do you have anything further, comments? No, just thank you all for listening, and Lord willing, we'll be on here April the 6th. April 6th, that's right. 10, new yeah, time. Yeah, we'll probably move our time to 2.15, that's a little round, more of a round number, but um, uh, 2.15, April 6th is the next live broadcast, broadcast of Faith and Practice, and of course, as always, you can listen to all of the past episodes. We've done 11 of these, now 12, 
You can do so at the ConfessingOurHope.com website, the GPTS mobile app, Sermon Audio has them, um, are they, wherever. They're, they're all over the place. So uh, grab them, listen to them. Uh, there's been a number of great questions that have been sent in. So until next time, when I sit down and talk with Dr. Ben Shaw, he is going to be uh, in studio to talk with me about the subject of the New Testament use of the old. It's a very interesting discussion and a topic that he has dealt with extensively in the Advanced Exegesis class here at the seminary. So until then, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.